welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. I think what Christians or truth seekers um, or anyone wanting to have like an objective truth have to really make sure that you are cautious and wise about is where your idea is rooted and what kind of a wisdom can we see in how it was executed or where it can go. And so that's why history is so important and that's why looking at other cultures and hearing people's story are so important. In this bonus double episode, we are skipping introductions of Tiffany and Mia, and we're jumping straight into the conversation. And you're catching us right in the middle of diving into the topic of Marxism, capitalism, and Christianity. Enjoy the ride. I do suspect that you are a real person who's really wrestling through faith and application and understanding our place and role and how do we move in this world and who do we listen to about different things and you're wrestling through all of that just like I'm wrestling through all of that. So I want to open up that part of this conversation by just checking in with you and where are you right now kind of in that conversation? Ooh, okay. Okay, I don't even know where I don't even know what to where to start. What I do see is a lot of people I'm trying to have conversations with or what I'm seeing um, people say on social media is that there's a lot of ideology and language that's Marxist and people don't even realize it. And I know that because I didn't and I had to educate myself and I had to dig deeper and read because of my traveling experience as well. Like I've been to Cambodia and I've met people who lost their family from the Khmer Rouge, being in Southeast Asia, especially during this wild season and being so close to China and having friends that are traveling back and forth, or even my friends who are Thai Chinese, knowing more about what's actually going on in China. And so learning about their new social point system. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. What I didn't learn in university was because I didn't have a context. And so now I have a context and it gives me an understanding of Marxist ideology and socialism and communism. In China right now, there is a social point system where you get points for making what they consider good choices and you lose points. And so, for example, if you buy too many video games or if you have a traffic violation, then you will lose points. And then you get prohibited from traveling, you know, over the train or traveling by plane. And so millions of people have already gotten that right taken away because of this point system. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So some of those things are probably things that we would adopt in our society, like murder, you lose some social points. Right. And then our government says, okay, you can no longer get certain kinds of jobs or do certain, but video games or things that could be benign, but are politicized or leveraged in some way or are predominantly in one group than another. Of course, I'm thinking about the war on drugs, about how we do this, where we assign a behavior that's predominant in a social class that we're trying to minimize. And then we criminalize that behavior. 
And it sounds like they're doing that on a pretty massive scale in China. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, we, we could do it. We could adapt that here. And I and some people would like that. For me, what I'm wrestling is what are the answers and what are the solutions? Because I want to be able to take action. It's an election year, right? So who are we voting for? But then I'm learning that so many of us don't even know at a state level what is going on. What are these policies that are in place? And... Where I'm personally um, trying to make sense of everything, you know, because I'm looking at North Korea. I was staying up late watching a TED Talk by a woman who had escaped North Korea, and I had no idea that there were so many people in North Korea who don't even know what the World Wide Web is, or that women, there's a poster, you go to the hairdresser, and you get a choice of, maybe it's nine, I don't remember the number, but this many different hairstyles that you can pick from. And I watched this American who went to North Korea and was on a, he was on a trip and I was learning all of these things that I had no context for. And so what does it really look like when you have communism and tyranny take over? And now nobody wants that, right? Like that's not anyone's desire for a country and Marxism actually, the whole point is there's more healthcare, there's more education, but there hasn't ever been in history a good example of communism. And you've always seen what the opposite actually happens. There's starvation. So many millions of people died in North Korea from starvation. There's suffering. There's slaughters and oppression when you look at Cuba. And so I think what happens is when we want to see social justice or we want to see solutions or policies or systems change, we look at the only solution being the government, that's where I say, okay, that's not complete because coming from a Christian perspective, I know that all sin originates in the heart. And so heart change is the solution, but it's also incomplete. Um, I was just reading from a professor. She's a, she is an expert in Marxism and, um, she has her PhD and she's a scholar and all of that. So I read something of hers a week ago, maybe it was a week ago, and it just made sense. And she was saying that our circumstances can aggravate sin, but it doesn't cause it. And so what Karl Marx would say is that you look at everything, you look at the context of you know society in terms of economy and that the socioeconomic is what forces and creates and causes that outcome or we'll say sin, but that's on the contrary of what, you know, Jesus's truth is and God's truth. And so for me, when I hear a lot of language that comes from this Marxist ideology that, you know, these kinds of systems are going to solve everything, I have to say, oh no, we're, we're missing it. Like that's, there's just this utopian idea and it hasn't worked. And I, I don't know what America could do different if you just change the environment. So I'll share a story with you guys. If you force generosity in a community, what like what does that look like? Rather than having authentic community where people out of God's love and the Holy Spirit, they want to give. And so my husband and I were at a really low point a few years ago with our kombucha business that we had built up. And 
we were having waffles for breakfast and I went and got the mail. It was sitting on the counter and I happened to open something as we were about to sit down for breakfast. I don't know why my husband was probably like, Tiffany, sit down. I just made these homemade waffles. And I opened up this envelope and there's a check for $5,000 with a sticky note with the Bible verse Acts 432 on it. And someone had just given us anonymously this money. And the Bible verse reference was that people give up their belongings and everything is shared within this community based on the Holy Spirit. And I would just fell to my knees and it was so beautiful. And that's the kind of vision that I have for authentic community instead of, you know, forcing um, systems. And I, and I don't have the answers because I'm not an expert, but that's just what my heart tells me is you can't just solve things um, through policies and government and there has to be heart change. So I, what do you guys think? I really appreciate this concept of um, it coming from the heart and I love that. And I struggle with that idea of it wanting to come from the heart and if we depend on the church to fill that space and the church being people I'm I'm struggling seeing the church do that and I just wish that the church was a better example than what I've seen maybe in healing the broken and the broken meaning lots of things. Yeah, the church has fallen short, for sure, even against the tenets of our own faith. And I was just talking with a mom at a wild and free homeschool adventure yesterday. We were hiking down to the stream along the north coast of Maui. And I was just sharing with her how I was grieving the reality that I can't control the outcome of my kids and I can't control my kids and I want to protect them and I can't, I can give them tools. And I said, but I'm going to do everything I can to point them to truth and to keep them safe and to show them goodness and, um, to help them know what is good and beautiful and true and how to face the things that are hard because they're inevitable. And then she said to me, if we can't control our own kids, how can we control other people? And I was just like, wow, exactly. So I have that tension too, Mia, where like, how does the church step in where people are hurting, where people are oppressed, where there's injustice? And, and I don't know because we haven't seen what that looks like. We haven't seen it lived out, but I know when you see Marxist ideology and communism lived out, it has not gone well either. Like trying to control people and someone all like what happens in the end is like the mighty elitist and the mighty oppressor. I, I feel like I just come to this place where I go, I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. I've never liked politics ever because I thought I don't have the wisdom or knowledge that's so much pressure. But I have to care and I have to educate myself now because it affects me and my children. And, and we're just in these, you know, quote, unprecedented, unquote, times. I wonder, hmm, 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to say something just to kind of stir around some ideas. I wonder if the church has fallen short because the church has tried to adopt the free market consumer ideology that's been formed by democratic capitalism and that the deeper the church leans into that ideology, the more we fail society. In the same way, Tiffany, I hear the caution of saying, well, goodness, if we lean into Marxism, that's, that's going to fail. That's going to lead to starvation and suffering and all kinds of oppression. Um, can I just admit that, um, that labels trigger me? And that um, when words like Marxism or capitalism or it um, immediately, for me, it goes into um, a black and white, good or bad camp. And so when I was trying to educate myself on this conversation, and I admit also, I want to add in that um, I do not have like the life experience of a lot of what Tiffany was talking about in the stories that directly related to her. I wish that we could pull out some ideologies or some practices and find out what, um, even though the whole system may have failed, what are some things in there? How can we find commonality between Marxism and Christianity? Maybe. Is there, is there any commonality? I don't know. I found maybe a couple. Is that really pushing some boundaries right there? Should I share what the couple are? Yeah, Mia, I, I would be curious. I, I'm just trying to think of some examples in the New Testament where Jesus sets up systems to help care for the underdog, to help care for the vulnerable, to help protect people. I thought that some of the collective um, sharing, collective property law, I find that to be challenging. I guess I live almost on a compound with um, my parents and my sister and um and there's just, there's a lot of people that are using the same space and ideally sharing a lot. And I find that really beautiful. That's good. Um, I also love that you just came in and you were like, I'm, this triggers me. And it's, it's really difficult for me too, especially right now in the climate of our country where you can just be put in a category or a box really quickly. And what I see is that doesn't help for productivity. It doesn't help for understanding. It's just, I just don't think it's helpful. So I, I can appreciate you sharing that and just having that reluctance when, when you hear these labels and we have to communicate in a way where we're right, where we understand each other. So we use a word and we get it. And, um, and I, and I love Mia that you're looking for something beautiful or something truthful out of, you know, Karl Marx's, because um, this Christian scholar, Kelly Hamnan, who was writing about him that I read a week ago, she was saying, and I just loved it because she said, are people wrong about absolutely everything? Because we're all made in the image of God. So even Karl Marx as a thinker is made in the image of God. And so she was saying, what's true is that 
power exists and people sometimes use it to oppress others. We can even see that in the Bible with the Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. And there's just a whole slew of people. So can we find something good and true from Marxism? And I think the answer is yes. And some Christians might go, right? Like Harry Potter. Oh my goodness. And so I think what Christians or truth seekers um, or anyone wanting to have like an objective truth have to really make sure that you are cautious and wise about is where are your ideas rooted and what kind of a wisdom can we see in how it was executed or where it can go. And so that's why history is so important. And that's why looking at other cultures and hearing people's story are so important. And so I just, I just keep wanting to ask people, can you point me to a country that has done it really well? That's done like different races, you know, coming together that has done where it's not, um, all capitalism or communism, you know, or like, what is a culture that's done it really well? And I think it's really hard when, when we don't have a perfect example of it. And even when we look at Jesus's life, Jesus didn't go and create systems or institutions. He sat down and had meals with people and he served people and he taught and shared his story and traveled around. And so even with Jesus, I'm like, homeboy, can you show us how it's done? Like, what does it look like? Because the organic heart to heart, person to person seems like it would take for, it would take too long. But I think many of us aren't, just aren't doing it well. Like we're not, like we, we say we're Jesus followers and I'm, and I'm speaking for myself. So I don't want to like go out and point fingers or anything. And I'm processing this as I'm talking about it, but I, yeah, I think if, if all Jesus followers were really living like Jesus, I think the world would be transformed and, and there wouldn't be people who were going hungry or being oppressed. I don't know though. Is that too idealistic? No, I don't think it is. But I think even if the, even if every follower of Jesus were living like Jesus did, there would still be capitalism, there would still be Marxism, there would still be socialism because what of what you said. Jesus lived in an incredibly oppressive, dictatorial empire, and instead of doing anything openly confrontational, he said, actually, I'm going to begin to draw the outline of a kingdom that thrives in any social structuring. This kingdom thrives in communism. This kingdom thrives in Marxism. This kingdom thrives in capitalism. This kingdom thrives in a republic, in a monarchy, in a dictatorship, anywhere. This kingdom thrives. It's so good. It's My mind is literally like opening up. I'm thinking about how you asked us if Marxism, if communism isn't the answer, is capitalism? What are the, the cons of capitalism? And I know they're there. I just don't know exactly what they look like. And as you're talking, I was thinking about how you said, even if, even if we had all these systems in place and we took away people's freedoms or, cause that's really what happens, um, in Thailand, if you say anything negative about the king, you can be imprisoned. And one man was imprisoned for 70 years. And when, um, the pandemic was happening, they went into a martial law and said, if you post anything on social media that scares people, you can be imprisoned. And they did arrest two people, a foreigner and a Thai guy. 
the freedoms, the democracy, there isn't, it's not a democratic country. It looks totally different in Thailand. Yeah, the freedoms that we have in America, we don't always recognize or appreciate. But in some ways, we have abused a lot of our freedoms. A lot of us want to live out the Declaration of Independence. Some of us don't even know it, but like we want to, but we're not, right? And so if we put in structures, policies, systems that um, try to force in a just place, like you said, Caban, there will still be oppression. There will still be poverty. And so I think that's what alarms me is that the language that many people are using is very utopian in thinking that they will be able to eradicate injustice and oppression. And while that's the goal, that isn't the promise. And I was just thinking of something I read by an artist. His name is Scott the Painter on Instagram. And he said, the goal of love is not to eradicate your weakness, but to weave it into the very center of all that you do. Love cannot use you if you don't embrace your weakness because love itself gives its life up for its friends and invites us to do the same. To know that your weakness is what connects you to love is to know one of the mysteries of the universe. Part of our weakness is wanting to be selfish. Can we eradicate human selfishness? No. And as a Christian, only Jesus can, but we're not even promised that it's eradicated here on earth, right? It's this other world. It's this kingdom that we can bring here, right? We can bring it into our hearts and we can live it out but we're not promised this eradication of it. It's in that giving up of ourself where we know these mysteries of the universe and this love and we see something that's beautiful and it's and capitalism is not selfless, is it? No, capitalism is perhaps the epitome of selfishness. So I've been seeing just a ton of people posting about, you know, you can't be a Christian and a Marxist. And I understand where it's coming from. It's, under, it's coming from this really genuine desire of saying, let's not get carried away. Let's understand what we're participating in. But I didn't see posts that said, you can't be Christian and love capitalism when President Bush stood up after 9-11 and told Americans to go shopping to save the economy. We had been attacked. We lost thousands of lives. And his answer was to encourage us to consume and we gleefully went along with it. Churches were encouraging people, go out, go support the economy, go spend money. And there wasn't a rush of, now of course social media didn't exist the way it did, right? But there wasn't a rush of headlines that said, whoa, 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 we need to be really cautious about this because what's being advertised from our highest government officials is so clearly out of line with how Jesus would call us to respond to the situation. And I do hear that caution now, but what it makes me think about is what you said, where are our ideas rooted? And it feels to me like our ideas of what it means to be Christian are so rooted in what it means to be in a democracy and what it means to be consumers in a capitalistic society that we're not even able to distinguish between them. I think, I, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... So here's an example of this is something that is not a Marxist belief. This is not a capitalist belief, but this is something that Jesus would say, I want to see this happen in my kingdom. And we had a chance for a brief moment of history to see it. We saw the year of Jubilee and we saw cities of refuge. And for those unfamiliar with the Christian tradition, 
in the early Jewish history as the divine being Yahweh was forming a people out of slavery and bondage and creating a structure that says this structure will give you social flourishing, human flourishing, spiritual flourishing, and international flourishing. He put, he being God Yahweh, put a few elements into that structure that are just completely bizarre to today's standards. And in fact, incredibly offensive. And I could probably find some Christians who would tell me that these ideas are unbiblical if I didn't start by saying that they were biblical. But the first is the idea of Jubilee. And that is to say, forgive debts. When you loan something, forgive it after a certain time and don't charge interest. So there could be a way that says, every time I earn money on interest, I am violating the kingdom of God. The second thing is cities of refuge, which anytime anyone was killed, the person who killed someone could flee literally to run on foot. And if they could get to the city gates of these 23 particular cities scattered around the country, if they could get to the city gates before they were caught by their pursuers, then they were safe. And they were safe for as long as the high priest of that city lived. And their case would be arbitrated by the people of that city. The people who dwelled in the cities of refuge, their whole job beyond their daily sustenance was to arbitrate between the people of Israel and the people who have wronged the people of Israel. There was this network of cities that existed to shelter murderers from social consequences in order to give space to discern the will of Yahweh and plead on behalf of the victim and the perpetrator to see if there is a path to justice that didn't involve more death. These are two things that God from the very beginning said, these are the kind of behaviors I want to see at a social level, society-wide, and they don't fit inside capitalism at all. They crack capitalism apart at the seams. Caban Sabbath does the same thing. And Sabbath Sabbath is a practice that my family has been trying to, and I say trying because we struggle also, right? To consume, to produce, even if the consuming is just um, something on our phone or thoughts, right? Instead of just silence um, or being productive around the house or whatever. Sabbath is, we were trying to practice it and it's been this theme for a few years. I've read so many good books about it and listened to so many great podcasts and John Mark Comer is one who um, launched me on that journey with a lot of really good stuff. But I can see how even the church, how Sabbath is not taught or spoken or exercised, pushes more for like consumerism than it does for this idea of rest and and God being all sufficient and being dependent on God and celebrating what we have instead of it's not enough. I need to do more. I've been uh, listening to somebody who's been talking about Jubilee and I was um, actually from some scriptures today that was talking about it because I wanted like more specific examples of like what Jubilee actually meant. And, um, and I think that, um, okay, so as a one, right, we went back to the Enneagram. As a one, I want to fix things. I want, like, structure. I want a way things should happen. 
I love Tiffany how you're like, it needs to be a heart thing. And I'm like, well, does it, can we start with just fixing it first and the heart will like come. And I just think that that's what's beautiful about creation is that like, I believe that our soul is like bodies and minds and spirit like united. I just think that it's really cool that like, debt is released. You know, you, you owe and every seven years, you're just going to release the debt that people owe you. When I was trying to figure out some bridges or commonalities between like Christianity and Marxism, how, you know, the, the concepts. So if we could take Marxism out of it, the, the concept of more communal living of caring for everybody's needs instead of more an individualistic society. Like I love the model of the farm and that I can't remember where in scriptures it says that it is, but, but um, don't tend to the edges of your fields, leave those for the poor. And when the grapes drop on the ground, just leave them there because somebody's going to eat them that needs that food. And, um, and I just, I, I hear a lot of people being really, um, you know, where's the motivation in, um, working if, you know, there's, there's not this reward system of, you know, a paycheck or, of of whatever the reward system is. And, and I, when I read those scriptures, I sometimes do not see that you need to work to get. And I, I don't know, that model, I'm just, I'm being challenged by, and also that I don't have to be the judge of whether somebody deserves something or not but just to freely give, I could go in a whole other direction of like how white culture, we're wanting to still be the savior in this whole thing. Sabbath was in my head and I actually didn't say it only because it's been so co-opted by capitalistic programs of the church. And what I mean by that is like Sabbath has been sanitized and commercialized to be something that we can consume. And I love John Mark Comer because, you know, in his book, Garden City, and in other places, he lays out a biblical vision of Sabbath that is not sanitized and not commercialized. To me, in my view of theology, which is, I describe it as a kingdom slash covenant theology, those three tenets are the core of the Old Testament law and my understanding of that theology. Not Maybe not theologically, but socially. When, when it looks at a social spiritual reality, Sabbath, cities of refuge, the practice of Jubilee, which by the way, um, the ignoring the edges of the field, all of that, that was all wrapped together in those same ideas of what it means to create a culture of abundance a culture of generosity, a culture of mystery um, that are all really important to what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. 
um, that is lacking from all of our current political systems. And let's be honest, it it should be lacking, right? As the moment that the Israelites said, we don't want God to be our king, we want our own king, we saw the beginning of the end of a lot of these practices being visible in political structures. was really beautiful and concise how you explain this triad and your theology because I think we're giving too much credence to Marxism. No, we're not. I think in in conversations, here's what I'm loving about what the three of us are doing right now is conversations help us to understand and process and learn and we all are a different enneagram and so Mia you said I'm a one and so I want a tangible solution and Tiffany over here as a feeler, you know, number four is looking at the heart and together we are piecing it together and we are wrestling through it and we are encouraging each other and helping each other. There's things that we can learn from Karl Marx. He's made in the image of God. He talks about some things that are true, but is he our center? Is he our central narrative? Is he our theology? No, the gospel's at the center and we can look at the Bible. And I love Mia, how you were saying, I want to look and I want to see like, what was Jesus doing? And Cabin, you said that the city of refuge, the year of Jubilee and Sabbath are these central truths that we can look to as examples of how we can bring justice and goodness into our culture and into our societies. And these conversations are really how we're going to progress and move forward. Because we don't have the answers and we haven't seen it perfectly lived out. A really fantastic book called An Other Kingdom. So not another kingdom, but an other kingdom. What it does is it seeks to separate out the kingdom of God from our current milieu of cultural norms and expectations. And they name that milieu, the free market consumer ideology. They identify that there's four pillars of this free market consumer ideology. And the four pillars are scarcity, certainty, perfection, and privatization. They do a great job outlining that. But those are things that I don't hear most people talking about. And then maybe most radically, and most radically, especially once the context is read into those four pillars of the free market consumer ideology, but they, they outline what they call a, a neighborly covenant. And they say, well, it's possible without changing necessarily the political structure or even the economic structure that we can still live in an other kingdom within any of these structures. And they lay out this vision of a neighborly covenant that's built on four different pillars. So the four pillars of the neighborly covenant are abundance, mystery, fallibility, and the common good. And the point of the neighborly covenant is it's supposed to be the size of the neighborhood. It's not meant to be a national mandate. Where we slide into like Marxist ideas is we say, I want to care for my neighbor. And then we say, nationally, everyone has to care for everyone's neighbor. And that means everyone has to give away everything they own. But if we keep it small, then we can say with God's full blessing and we can all agree, yeah, caring for my neighbor is the right thing to do. And their well-being is more than their ability to purchase and consume more goods. 
Um, can I just push back on that neighbor thing a little bit? Our, uh, one of the banners of our church is love God, love your neighbor. And I am struggling with, that's an and, that's not a but or an or, so I'm trying to stay away from binaries. But, um, my neighbors right now are middle class, upper middle class, white people. And so if I love my neighbors, that's going to be super easy, especially with the communal living that I'm doing with my family. We all have a similar sort of worldview, similar systems, um, language, not just English, but we have a similar way of seeing the world. And I'm trying to work on seeing my neighbor as somebody on the other side of the world and what that looks like and how to bridge some people's experiences that looked really different from mine and how to, you know, what are they saying right now? Share the mic. You know, how do I, how do I get those voices more influence? And also, those are some thoughts that I have on neighbor. For me, my struggle is I want to love my my local neighbor better. And I had this whole vision when I was coming back to Hawaii of what it would look like to find people who were different than me. And I thought, why is it so hard for me to have to go out and find? Like, I have to go out and make that happen consciously and with effort. And then I thought about the neighbors in where, where we are right now, but we're in a temporary place and how we're not like-minded and I don't always know them. And I just thought, okay, that that's, it is kind of hard for me to know my literal neighbor, but it's just kind of curious how, how hard it is for people to be in community with people who are different, like look different, come from a different socioeconomic background, come from a faith background. It's not like I reject it. I love people. I'm a weird person who loves people who are different from me. I I want you to challenge me. I celebrate the differences. You make me better. I want to ask you a million questions upon meeting you. And I my my philosophy is that we all have something in common. So I can be everybody's friend. And sometimes that's hard for me because Jesus is like Tiffany. I was perfect and I wasn't everybody's friend. Like they hated me. So (laughs) it's something I'm kind of thinking about. Not I'm kind of, Mia. It's something I'm thinking about too is how can I love my neighbor? And then I almost want to smack myself on why do I, why do I have to overthink loving my neighbor? Like what is going on? Yeah, that's, that's a real struggle. What's great about it is it's such a human struggle. I think that's important to name because I think a lot of times we can be down on ourselves for not quote unquote doing better. And yet the struggle is so common that it's perhaps one of the more human struggles we encounter, especially in an increasingly technologically connected world, just loving the people literally next to us. And we have a hard time with that. I I know I don't, think the same as most people. So then the question is, well, what do we talk about? And then it forces me to think about those things. And I do it terribly so often. Um, When we lived in Auburn, we had just a quaint little suburban house with a front yard. And 
I ripped up some of the grass and put in some DG, some decomposed granite, and we put our backyard furniture in our front yard, and we just committed to having dinner in our front yard when we could. And so we just waved to neighbors as they drove by, and we talked to people on the sidewalk as they walked by the front of our house. And it began to change the feel of our neighborhood, not just for our house, but for the eight or ten houses around us. And there was a pastor in a church who asked me to identify some of the cornerstones of what it meant to live with a purpose in a neighborhood. And one of the things that I said at the time was ask for help. And it stopped the conversation in his tracks because he had been used to the program of the church going out and doing all the service projects. Yet what I found was the more that I needed my neighbor's help legitimately, the more we became friends. So when we lived in Auburn, and of course it's different here on the farm because I have a business to run called a farm. But when we lived in Auburn, I committed to not buying any tools and yet I wanted to do a bunch of house projects. And so I had to knock on a bunch of neighbors' doors a bunch of times and ask to borrow tools and become indebted to them and pay for stuff I broke and replace parts. For me, it was conscious and deliberate because I had the economic means that I could have just gone out and bought what I needed. But there are lots of people who are in that position because they have no other option. I feel like some of those communities are also the most life-giving. Is there something about needing each other and not being so self-sufficient and self-reliant that unlocks something meaningful about what it means to be a neighbor? How radical that you put your backyard furniture in the front yard and you got to know people just where you placed yourself instead of hiding in your backyard. My mother-in-law loves to take walks and we live in a neighborhood that's, they call it like mountainside so across from the ocean up the mountain a little bit, and it's got lots of hills and a lot of unique homes. And I would rather take a walk on the beach, but my mother-in-law really likes to walk in the neighborhood and, and she's more of a homebody. So the other day we went for a walk and we stopped and talked to so many people. And I, we, my husband and I had lived in this neighborhood years ago, uh, for four years and my mother-in-law comes here for six months out of the year, and then she goes back to her home state, Washington. And I just thought, wow, she's at a whole different pace and perspective, and what a gift this is to just stay in the hood and get to know the neighbor who has a ram, like two hairy rams with so much hair in the hot <laughs> island of Maui. I'm like, why does this guy have two rams? Um, and just hearing his story and then getting to know all the different neighbors. And I just wouldn't have done that. It was really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And Mia, I feel like you bring in that really important conversation about saying, yeah, it's, it's good for us to be aware of our local context, but we're not isolated. Our local context wouldn't exist without the larger context. And so then the question is, how do we become good relators and generous and kind relators uh, to people who are very different from us, who have never seen over the same horizons that we look over, both literally and metaphorically? And I think that that's a really important question to be asking. Yeah, it's a big thing that we say in our family is like, what do you mean 
mean by that? So you, you might say, you know, you might have a thought or an idea or you say something really bluntly, but then we often say, well, what do you actually mean by that? And, you know, a whole other set of content, right? It's hard. It's it's different than being at you know the dinner table, but um, but kudos for doing it. I think it's going to be really cool. And I I bought a a mixing board that has four mic ports specifically because my desire was to host it at my mm -hmm. dinner table, mm -hmm. and you know COVID and everything else. Mm -hmm. But Mia, there might be a day in the future where you're sitting at my dinner table and we're doing this mm -hmm. again. Well, I'm just hoping that I'm sitting at your dinner table. So that's all I care about. <laughs> Tiffany, have you seen any pictures of our dinner table? Do you know what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. It's epic how it is suspended from the ceiling. <laughs> um, and, so, and, and that's where I'm recording right now. I'm just sitting here in our living room. On your floating table? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love no, it. No, I love the table. And I'm just sitting here thinking... I wish I had more wisdom. Um, I'm just thinking about what Jesus did around the table. Mm. I just want to make more friends with people and keep my eyes open and be uncomfortable. And like Mia said, ask questions. And that's our show. Thank you for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Next week, we pick up on the thread of power, agency, and influence. Here's a sneak peek. Going back to one of the big things that shaped the whole trajectory of my life was really a car wreck. When I was still a teenager, boarding school, and my father's medical condition just couldn't really be handled at the, the health organizations that we had available in Kenya. So ultimately my parents decided it was better to return to the U.S. and there would at least be family. Over the years what kind of stuck in the back of my mind was that my family could just leave. Like if we needed health care, we had the ability to leave. I recognized that there are a lot of people around the world who don't have access to just basic health care. You know, getting checkups for pregnancy, um, getting vaccines. So that's really what steered me toward health care and a lot of what I do right now. There are a lot of really highly qualified, trained professionals in Kenya and Ethiopia and, you know, all over the world. That's where I've steered a lot of my life. Um, you know, kind of recognizing that I have resources and access to things not because of something I ever did. It was just, you know, the family I was born into. That's complicated. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content 
including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.